Hi everyone, I'm Anya Parampil and this is Redlines. My guest today is Afshin Ratanzi. He's a friend of the Gray Zone and host of the show Going Underground on RTUK. Afshin, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. What a privilege. Let's start with news about Brexit. The UK's Information Commission recently announced results of a report which found the British consulting firm Cambridge Analytica was not responsible for influencing the vote to leave the European Union in 2016. How does that compare with what establishment pro-EU politicians and media have been telling the public for the last four years? This is like when the U.S. agencies of state say the Russians actually didn't uh, elect Donald Trump. There hasn't been any news about that here. You're over there on the east coast of the United States suddenly informing me that Cambridge Analytica, which was on the headlines of every uh, television station here as being the, the main provocateur that caused the Brexit vote, the fact that fact is it didn't. And of course, anyone with uh, some semblance of understanding the way society works, the way uh, uh, structures, class structures work, austerity works, would have realized that a few Facebook-targeted adverts through an agency like Cambridge Analytica, which was a kind of, you know, what are they, PR firms, marketing firms, they, they're not the reason that Britain uh, uh, voted in its biggest vote in history to leave the European Union. There must have been more structural reasons. So uh, the fact that this report has come out uh, saying Brexit was not a creation of a marketing agency, it should be no surprise. And yet, I mean, to name one outlet, Channel 4 News, considered a progressive uh, news outlet here on uh, ITV, uh, or made by ITN, uh, one of the largest uh, news and current affairs producers, day after day they were telling us it was Cambridge Analytica. I think uh, no one will even know about the story you just mentioned to me. Well, of course, the implication in blaming Cambridge Analytica for the vote to leave the European Union is to imply that the average Briton had no reason to vote to leave otherwise. So you mentioned structural issues. Just recap, because we don't really hear about this perspective much in the United States. Why do you believe Britons, as you said, voted in the largest vote in their history to exit the EU? So divorced are elites from normal, everyday people in this country that uh, they were so shocked about the Brexit vote. Rather like, I suppose, people in the United States were shocked that uh, a man saying he was going to abolish the NAFTA free trade agreement could ever win the White House, Donald Trump. And actually, Donald Trump got rid of NAFTA. Uh, the point is that uh, over year after year, the European Union was seen as a neoliberal organization that was uh, not benefiting average people in Britain. It was benefiting the financial services industry. It was benefiting uh, all those uh, who are in power, not uh, the majority of the population. So, of course, the reasons are relatively clear as to why there began to be a hatred of the European Union. That, of course, tied up to a right-wing nationalism uh, that has been fostered by a press uh, obsessed with uh, jingoism, which always said the problems uh, within British society all relate to Europe. So once you have a uh, an alliance of those who are uh, working class, who feel that neoliberal institutions are destroying them, plus a jingoistic right-wing elite, uh, elite class imagination, 
you know, unite the two of them, they're going to win the Brexit referendum. What exactly is the status of Brexit? It's quite confusing for people, I think, in the United States to understand. And has the coronavirus outbreak impacted negotiations at all? Well, I have to say, after the Brexit uh, referendum, and I, I covered it, I couldn't help feeling that elites will always find a way to uh, manipulate the situation so that Brexit doesn't happen. Other countries in Europe, Portugal, France, um, a whole number of them, Denmark, they voted kind of to leave the European Union in previous referendums. All were nobbled in some way by elites because the whole idea of the European Union, based as it is on you're not supposed to have state aid to industries, you're not supposed to have anything that resembles ideas of progressive socialism in their economies, those were all nobbled. So there was a, for a time an idea that the British Civil Service, all who, of whom who come from the elites, were going to stop this largest ever democratic vote. Today, we are extending the Brexit negotiations by a month, as far as I understand it. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, uh, from the liberal elites, as it were, who's always been a pro-European, even when he was writing articles against the European Union before he was uh, fired from the newspaper, the D Daily Telegraph, that he used to write for. It's a complete muddle over what exactly is happening with, uh, with Brexit. Uh, they keep trying to talk about trade deals that they have negotiated somehow post Brexit, we interviewed, you know, a tiny country like the Faroe Islands and Britain was trying to trumpet. We've made this deal. Only in the past few days, Nancy Pelosi, the uh, Speaker of the House over there, has been saying that the food standards, I think, they don't match with British food standards. So there won't be an immediate trade deal with the United States. The point is, January the 1st, um, as far as the current situation is, Britain will have uh, lorry parks. Uh, across southern England uh, because there'll have to be massive customs uh, operations uh, for all the food, for all the massive trade done with the European Union. There will be problems in Ireland. There, I mean, there is chaos on the cards. And as for, uh, as for the actual negotiations themselves, maybe coronavirus has helped uh, give uh, both Brussels and London an excuse to say we need a bit more time to organise how tariffs and trade can be organized for the benefit of both parties. Do you fear that Britain could be trading an outsized influence from the rest of Europe over its own sovereign policies for the United States to step in and play that role? We already see Boris Johnson and, and Donald Trump really working to strengthen relations between the US and UK. Well, yeah, Trump uh, has been tweeting in favor of Boris Johnson, I understand, and maybe he could pull uh, a rabbit out of the hat at the last minute before he uh, maybe even leaves in November after your election and say there has been some kind of treaty uh, that uh, is going to be signed by executive order. Who knows? No, it, I think it has to go through Congress if there's going to be a large-scale trade treaty. I think um, those on the progressive side of politics would say that Britain removing itself from the European Union does not necessitate it becoming a uh, further vassal state of the United States. It could mean that it is allowed to organize its trade and its uh, structural investment in infrastructure in a way very different to that allowed by European Union 
rules, especially, for instance, in the field of uh, uh, the nationalization, democratization of uh, crucial industries privatized by uh, Mrs. Thatcher in the 1980s, Tony Blair in the 1990s. So it doesn't mean necessarily that the United States is just going to take over uh, British uh, trade regulations. The big scare here is the uh, so-called chlorinated chicken you have in the United States. Anyone from Britain who's eaten food in your country will automatically start criticizing it, no matter how organic it is. Um, but it isn't, it isn't a necessity, Brexit, that Britain automatically becomes uh, uh, subsumed by the regulatory uh, systems that organize your food industry, chemicals industry, uh, pharmaceutical industries, and so on. I want to pivot to a discussion of WikiLeaks because we were we were discussing, we're talking about Cambridge Analytica, of course. In the United States, we were also told that Cambridge Analytica played a major role in the election of Donald Trump. But another focus of those trying to explain away the loss of Hillary Clinton was WikiLeaks due to its release of the Democratic National Committee emails and and it's really been demonized in the United States. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is facing trial in the UK. His extradition hearings recently wrapped up. From your vantage point, what did his case and his trial teach us about the state of the British justice system? Did he receive a fair trial? Well, if uh, if anyone thought that there has been some kind of social mobility, some kind of change in the establishment in Britain over the past decades, I mean, this this hearing in uh, London at the Old Bailey for uh, decisions over whether to extradite the founder of WikiLeaks to a Virginia court has shown how strong elites are. I must give a shout out to uh, uh, former British ambassador uh, Greg Murray, uh, Juan Passarelli, Taylor Hudak, Tarek uh, uh, Haddad, Mohammed El Mazi, and others, because without them, we wouldn't have known what was going on in the hearing. Uh, as you can imagine, my program going underground, we didn't get video access to what was happening in the hearing. Others have written about how difficult uh, it was made uh, to be able to even cover uh, the hearing. And um, I think it's been an astonishing, astonishing trial come hearing, showing how the uh, military industrial complex here in Britain, together with the United States, works hand in hand together uh, to destroy justice. The idea that Amnesty International, by no means always a great, uh, uh, a great defender of human rights, it has to be said. It's often come under uh, some um, uh, spotlights of uh, connivance between uh, it and the US military industrial complex. It never made Julian Assange a prisoner of conscience. Amnesty International was banned from the hearing. So was Reporters Without uh, Borders uh, for, for a certain amount of time during the hearing. Uh, 30, maybe 40 NGOs internationally not allowed to see uh, the way that uh, a man who, uh, according to the UN Special Rapporteur Niels Meltzer said, is tortured uh, by the British government and your government and the Ecuadorian government uh, and the Swedish government. I mean, the fact that this could be happening in London just kind of encapsulated that nothing kind of has changed in terms of the establishment of those who go to the private schools, who go to the, uh, who, uh, I mean, the, the presiding judge who was promoted by a, uh, a judge in the first few hearings. Um, her name is Vanessa Baretzer. Her boss 
in the past few days promoted to be at the High Court, uh, a certain Lady Emerald Bothnot. I know the Grey Zone has been covering her links, and especially her husband's links, her husband being a former Tory defence minister, linked to entities which feature in the WikiLeaks um, revelations uh, about things those in authority did not want us to know. Uh, this is uh, obviously not, not justice in any way. So it's actually terrifying. And it's a case which has extreme implications for press freedom in the United States and the UK. How did establishment media in Britain cover it? Yeah, they just they just didn't cover it at all, just as they didn't cover the Cambridge Analytica revelation that they didn't actually cause Brexit. There was, um, I mean, there was apparently the state mandated uh, BBC. Uh, there was apparently a reporter there at the hearing. I don't know who he or she was, but the BBC did not really cover it. An old uh, foreign correspondent of theirs, not a not a great foreign correspondent, some might say. He was uh, there at Gulf War One, uh, trumpeting uh, like a stenographer. I remember it at the time, Gulf War One. John Simpson, he, to his credit, did say, "Why well, have not more people not covering this? It obviously has implications for press freedom." Yeah, I mean, if uh, if Vanessa Barretz, uh, uh, she she judges on the in January 2021 that Julian Assange can be extradited to Virginia, it means uh, until the appeal goes through, any journalist that reveals things the United States doesn't like, it doesn't matter what nationality they are, they are subject to U.S. law, U.S. jurisdiction, something that I would presume uh, other uh, members like Russia and China on the U.N. Security Council will say, uh, no, it doesn't work like that. People might not be surprised that the conservative government of Boris Johnson is enabling the trial and persecution of Assange. But what exactly has been the position of his opposition, particularly Labour leader Keir Starmer? Well, in fairness to Boris Johnson, he is a former journalist. I would have thought, and I've interviewed his father many, many times, who's a, um, a libertarian, uh, he was a Tory uh, former European uh, Union official, but he is a libertarian. And I should say there are libertarians on the right who defend Julian Assange. As for, uh, and of course, it is known that Tory prime ministers, uh, I only have to think of David Cameron once said about a uh, uh, the brutal killing of an Irish civil rights lawyer who he tried to get some justice for. David Cameron on the right was saying, you don't realize what dark forces there are in British society in the British elites that prevent even a prime minister doing anything. So I don't know whether Boris Johnson wants something to happen vis-a-vis uh, -vis the freedom of Julian Assange. As for Sakir Starmer, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind. I met him at uh, before he became prime minister at a BBC debate program, the top debate program here, and uh, he refused to shake my hand, uh, which is very odd because uh, Sakir Starmer and the others, these are establishment people. It was an establishment uh, news program. Very strange. Even the Tory government minister looked at him and looked at me thinking, that's a bit strange. Could it be? Because Sakir Starmer is so intimately involved with the intelligence services in this country. Um, I know the Grey Zone has published questions as regards the leader of the Labour Party who replaced Jeremy Corbyn. He was director of public prosecutions when the infamous emails that are now being leaked suggesting that uh, suggesting to Sweden they must uphold allegations of sex crimes against Julian Assange, all of which were, have been dropped, and the Swedish authorities appear to want to have been dropped. 
he was he was there. He he's the guy who uh, socially interacts with the head of MI5 after saying, you know what, we don't want any prosecution of uh, uh, the security services here in terms of their affiliation to torture of Biniam Muhammad, who is in Guantanamo Bay. Sakir Starmer, time and time again, who masquerades as a human rights lawyer, has been associated with the security services. Uh, his, um, his election, it should add, to, to becoming leader of the Labour Party, he refused to say he was bankrolling him. We now know who's bankrolling him. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, our version of APAC. It was um, uh, a guy called Sir Trevor Chin, who is head of uh, BICOM, which is our version of the Israeli lobbying, uh, lobbying um, firm, lobbying agency. He has close relations with all these different uh, areas of the security state. And whereas Jeremy Corbyn and his uh, former uh, Shadow Home Secretary, I think, and... Um, I think even his shadow foreign secretary, Jeremy Corbyn, very much someone who um, did belatedly, it has to be said, he said very little about Julian Assange in fairness, but he did belatedly say this is about press freedom. Sir Keir Starmer, nothing. In fact, Sir Keir Starmer, if anything, has been seeking to uh, revoke licenses for TV companies who try to cover the case. Starmer's links to the security services may have been highlighted this week during a debate over a security bill in British Parliament. I saw reports that he was whipping members of Labour to abstain from a vote which would increase the powers of the security services while Corbyn and others actually defied that, that line and voted against it. Can you tell us anything more about that debate and bill? Okay, this is so shocking, it may seem unbelievable to viewers. In fairness to Starmer, not even members of the security services really want the power to torture, rape, and murder uh, trade union activists in Britain. But that's what the stakes are of this bill. This bill would immunize the prosecution of our security services if they murder, rape, or assassinate uh, people on the left. Now, that, I mean, clearly that seems amazing. Um, the FBI don't have that right. They're not allowed to do that, theoretically. And uh, Sakir Starmer, uh, he, he wouldn't vote against it. And he, not only that, he told his MPs not to vote against a bill that would do this, leading to uh, some honourable exceptions who said, there's no way we can be an MP for the Labour Party in this country and uh, say that um, members of MI5 and MI6 can murder, rape, or torture trade unionist activists, or, or even Labour MPs. Who knows who else? Why Boris Johnson wants to bring this in, I'm not uh, not quite sure. It came about uh, in Parliament just as uh, new uh, revelations were coming out about um, uh, MI5 secret agents who had fathered children with environmental activists undercover. Um, these are the kinds of stories about the security state that are emanating in Sakir Starmer. Uh, clearly on a, on a very different side to, uh, so, some would say, um, British history, if going back to Magna Carta and beyond. I've also seen complaints that Starmer doesn't actually seem to know what it means to act as an opposition figure. I, I also saw Starmer out, the hashtag was trending on, on Twitter this week. What, what does that sentiment come from? Is he opposing the conservative government in any meaningful way? 
I mean, to, to uh, give him the benefit of the doubt, there is a myth that the Labour Party in Britain has been anti-neoliberal, anti-neocolonial, when in fact Labour, and of course I think most people around the world know about Tony Blair, leader of the Labour Party, his actions over Iraq. There's a myth that Labour has been this great uh, uh, anti-colonial uh, party. But Keir Starmer taking the uh, cue from his pollsters that all he needs to do is wait for Boris Johnson to fail and then slowly uh, slowly become uh, president, sorry, not president, prime minister of Britain. I mean, that seems to be his, uh, his attitude. So there was something here about closing bars at 10 o'clock at uh, night. There is no scientific, uh, scientific advice or modeling that shows that by closing a bar at 10 o'clock at night instead of 11 o'clock at night, you're going to reduce coronavirus transmission. In fact, if anything, what happens is young people then leave the bars and then go to their own houses where the transmission tends to occur, according to latest data. Again, Starmer flip-flopped on it and then didn't vote against the government's line that we should close the bars at 10 o'clock. It's this kind of thing again and again and again where he doesn't really say uh, the government, um, he doesn't really tell his MPs to vote against the government. And you have to note how far they will go. I mean, in the leadership uh, campaign for the Labour Party, he's, the person he's appointed, foreign shadow foreign secretary, is the one who said, we should never condemn Israel, even if it commits atrocities against Palestinians. Uh, Keir Starmer has come out with astonishing levels of, we want to work with the government. We want to work with the government all the time, again and again and again, even though the government arguably is carrying out uh, unbelievable assaults on civil liberties. Is there any hope, Afshin, that a true progressive left-wing leaders such as Jeremy Corbyn can rise in the party once again and even perhaps win the prime ministership or is Britain just on this very dark path that's how it, that's how it feels every time I read about the UK honestly well um the Labour Party was founded by trade unionists and Len McCluskey the leader of one of the largest trade unions took 10 percent uh, took a 10% discount of money to the Labour Party, Labour being funded by the trade unions, saying he wants to fund uh, new activist groups and those seeking social justice and so on, rather than just giving it to the Labour Party. Having said that, I'm not sure how strong that is. I mean, he's considered a bit of a firebrand left-wing Labour leader. Shouldn't he have just withdrawn all his working-class members' money from a party that uh, appears not to want to vote against the murdering of trade union activists? Everyone is um, is scared. Everyone appears a little scared. And uh, there was a cleansing of the progressive left from the parliamentary Labour Party, which anyway was dominated by the neoliberal right and the Blairites. Uh, certainly nothing on the horizon at the moment as regards anything uh, in terms of government that can be done progressively. If anything, uh, hopes about uh, progressive politics that will have to come from the libertarian right within the Conservative Party, may maybe. The trade unions are in the grip of uh, also um, right-veering, or at least neoliberal uh, veering leaderships. It'll be up to those trade union leaders, the trade union uh, uh, committees, to be able to try and enforce some kind of change uh, or some kind of stance against uh, uh, things that erode worker rights in Britain. It's interesting because some of that mirrors the contradictions we're facing in the United States, where, for example, some of the more, the loudest anti-war voices come from the, the right. Now we have 
the Imperial Party really appearing to be that of the Democrats. So I feel your pain, Afshin. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was fascinating as always, and I encourage viewers to watch Afshin's show, Going Underground, on RTUK. Thanks so much. Thanks, Andrew.